Well, hello everybody, good to see you. My name is Alex Grauman, and I'm the Torrance Campus Pastor here at Journey Faith. Nice to be with you this morning. If you're at Manhattan Beach here, I can see your faces. That's so, so nice that you're here at church. Uh, But of course, this is the time where we connect live with our Torrance Campus. I can't see you, but I love you guys over there. I'm so glad that we're connected with you. Uh, And then anyone who's watching this online, maybe that's live with us or during the week, thanks for making church part of your week. Uh, We are in our second of a series of five messages uh, in this Get Ready series. And during the series, we're looking at two New Testament books from the Bible, and here's what they are. They are First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, these two books are actually letters written by one of the first Christian missionaries. His name is Paul, and he's writing to a group of Christians, a small church in the city of Thessalonica. Uh, and in this city of Thessalonica 2,000 years ago, they were asking big questions about some of the teachings of Jesus. Specifically, they were thinking about teachings that had to do with what we sometimes call the end times, this promise that Jesus made when he was on earth that he would one day return, that he would come again. And that coming again would represent the wrap-up of all of history and the time where he would create a new connection between himself and those who would choose to follow him. Now, that was such an exciting thing, but it also came with some prophetic uh, kind of what would happen before. How would we know when Jesus would come? Uh, Paul and others prophesied that we would know it because there would be big calamity in the world. There would be wars. There would be uh, global catastrophe. There would be big uh, political infighting. There would be really confusing religious teaching. And even as you saw from the opening video, that was certainly the case 2,000 years ago, and we've only gotten more of that stuff in our recent times. And so just like they were then, uh, we in this series are kind of trying to process that question of, could we be in the end times? Could Jesus's return be imminent, be soon because of what we're seeing in the world? Some people in our time are like, for sure, the world is falling apart. It's obvious Jesus is returning. The truth is that we don't know the day. We don't know the hour when Jesus will come back and finish up all of history. In fact, uh, this might be some bad news for you end times buffs. Um, Paul in First and Second Thessalonians doesn't give us many answers. He doesn't. He's not even trying to answer the question of when is the time. Instead, he is challenging us to be ready. Whether that time is right now, this afternoon. Oh Lord, let it be this afternoon. That would be wonderful. Uh, or if it's fifty thousand years from now, we won't live that long. But how do we live now? Whether it's now or later, how do we be ready? Paul's answer in First and Second Thessalonians is has less to do with the date and much, much more to do with becoming people of Christ-like character, of good character that would echo who Jesus is in the world. In fact, one of his main themes is that as end times anxiety goes up, so should our reflection of Jesus. When the world seems the most broken, that's when we need to look the most like Jesus and his people if you're one of his followers. In fact, last week, Jason kicked off this series with the beginning of 1 Thessalonians, and he pointed out that one of the primary characteristics that Paul encourages us to have is this gentleness, that we would be gentle-hearted people. When the world goes bananas, we would be calm. We would be people who are gentle-hearted and are able to show people Uh, God's love. Because again, this is not just for our sake, for the expectant return of Jesus. We want him to return, to finish everything up, to have his victory, but we also want as many people as possible to follow him. And that gentleness, uh, that gentle-hearted spirit can be a hugely effective part of that. 
Well, today we're going to look at another piece of advice that Paul gives and explore that together. Uh, So here is our main point for today. It is this, we can better face an uncertain future if we expect challenges. Instead of being people who go with uh, everything's going to be great because I'm a follower of Jesus, nothing's going to be harmful or be challenging, that's not how Jesus works. (laughs) He promises us that challenges will come. And so one of the ways that we can be ready for his eventual return is to live in expectation of having to go through or face challenges. Uh, When my oldest son, our first son, his name is Martin, when he was, I can't remember if he was five or six, uh, but he was a little guy, and he started riding the school bus to school. We lived in an area of the country where that was really common. I know here in Southern California that's not very common, but that was an everyday occurrence for him. He would get on this bus, and off to school he would go. It was actually one of those buses, too, where it wasn't just little kids on the school bus in the morning. It was like every age range, like all the way up to 12th grade. That was really scary because he was like in first grade sitting next to these big kids on the bus. That's really scary for a parent. But uh, he was also, maybe even a bigger challenge, he was one of the first kids to get picked up in the morning and one of the last kids to get dropped off uh, after school. And so he was on the bus for like a half an hour uh, in either direction. And so even at a really tiny little boy age, he had to figure out how to fill his commute time. Uh, some of you deal with that in your jobs now. He was well-trained even as a tiny little guy. He loved little tiny boy things. Uh, he liked video games and he liked comic books. And so he decided to fill his time by bringing some comic books or books on the bus. One of his favorites, I have it with me, was this series based on uh, the Nintendo game, Legend of Zelda. Uh, this is a, a manga, so translated from Japanese. So the Nintendo game, Legend of Zelda, is all about this guy Link and his adventures. And so if you ever, you should really get these for your kids if you don't have them. They're really fun books. They are manga, so translated from Japanese. So you start in what we would usually occur, uh, feel as the back, and then you read towards the front. It's fascinating, uh, really great little books, and he would bring these on the bus and read them to himself. One day, though, he got off the bus after school, and he was really down. And if you're a parent and your kid is down after school, you're like, what happened? Did the big kids do something mean? Surely they did. Everything was gone wrong. I feel unsafe, and are you okay? You want, you want to protect this kid. And he, Martin was down. He got off, and he said, Mom and Dad, I love reading my comic books on the bus. I love reading my Zelda manga. And then he said, and I thought everybody would love it. So I tried to read it out loud to the whole bus. And the big kids were like, that's stupid, sit down. So it's a hard, it was a hard day, it was a hard day. Now at that moment, all of my dad evolutionary instincts and training as a parent clicked in. This was my moment, I knew exactly what he needed at that moment. So I got down on one knee and I put my hand on his shoulder and I said, son, you're a nerd. <laughs> Some of you have kids that need this talk early in life. He was trying to read Japanese comics based on video games to cool kids on the bus, and it wasn't going to work out. He needed to expect that as a nerd, challenges were going to come his way. Sure, nerds eventually rule the world, but when they're kids, it's a tough living out there. Um, If I can be helpful to your children, let me know if you need pastoral support in that. Hey, listen, I tell you that story because it's not that different than what Jesus wants to say to us. Uh, We return often to a very specific verse in the Bible from Jesus himself where it's almost like he gets down on his knee, puts his hand on all of our shoulder as followers of Jesus, and he says this to us. He says, you're a nerd. No. He says, here on earth, 
you will have many trials and sorrows. Jesus promises us that we're going to have challenges. He says, but take heart because I have overcome the world. The God of the universe is our advocate. He does want us, though, to expect challenges, to know and be ready for the things coming our way. Whether those are end times challenges, we don't know. But whatever they are, how can we face those things by knowing that they're on their way? Today we're going to look mostly at a passage from the book of 1 Thessalonians. Here's what it is if you want to write this down. We're going to be looking at verses from this section, chapter 2, verses 13 through 20, though we're going to pop in a couple other outside of that from the the two books of Thessalonians. In this section, Paul is writing to his friends about the challenges that they're going through. He is not with them. He's writing a letter from afar, and he knows that they've been through challenges specifically of persecution, where the culture around them uh, was not happy with the growing movement of Christianity in that area. Uh, Christianity, if you remember, this is 2,000 years ago, was a brand new religion, was a new faith. It grew out of Judaism, uh, but the, it shook up, especially it was, it was growing fast, it shook up some of the power dynamics in both the religious and the political world as these new followers of Jesus started realizing, hey, we serve the ultimate king, Jesus, not Caesar, not any other worldly ruler or religious figure, our truest king, now we want to be good citizens, but our truest leader is the king of kings, is Jesus. You can imagine that didn't sit well with everyone who was interested in holding on to power in that time. Well, part of their struggle was that they were told by religious authorities that they couldn't share their faith, but it often got much worse than that. They were sometimes, these early Christians, jailed for their faith or even killed for proclaiming that they were followers of Jesus. So in that context, Paul is writing to them and he acknowledges their struggles. Here's what he says in some of these verses. He says, dear brothers and sisters, you suffered persecution from your own countrymen that came. In this way, You imitated the believers in God's churches in Judea who, because of their belief in Christ Jesus, also suffered from their own people. Paul makes this immediate connection between their struggle and other people who are also going through this struggle. He says, even though we're far away from each other, we are suffering the same thing. We are together in this. And then he talks very compassionately to them about how they're dealing with it. In fact, he's heard good news that they're doing really well facing these struggles with Christ-like character. And he is so happy about that, he talks to them very dearly about how they're processing it. Here's what he says. He says, dear brothers and sisters, after we were separated from you for a little while, though our hearts never left you, we tried very hard to come back because of our intense longing to see you again. We wanted very much to come to you, and I, Paul, tried again and again, but Satan prevented us. Now, he's referencing Satan here. This is an echo of Jesus when Jesus talked about an enemy, an actual standing against what Jesus wanted to do was the spiritual force of Satan. He's using that kind of reference. He's also talking about generally the troubles they're having personified in this person, Satan, where he's saying, the things that are holding me back are all the brokenness and persecution that we're experiencing, that the enemy wants to keep us apart. So it wasn't just physical challenges they were facing, persecution. It was also the fact that they were physically separate from each other. They longed for each other. Now, I really wanted, not just the Satan reference, I really wanted you to see from that passage how warm he is towards his fellow 
Christian family members. He calls them his dear brothers and sisters. Remember, he says, even though we're separate, my heart that has never left you. He tells them, I have had this intense longing to see you again. There's this sappiness to his love for these people that is kind of different than our culture today. I don't know many of you, usually when I'm out in the lobby and people are coming into church, we say, hey, how are you? How? Well, good to see you, good to see you. We don't say, oh, brother, I have longed to see you over the past week. My heart was never far from this campus. <laughs> Here's the message. I think we should say those things. Not the nonsense part of it. I think there's a sentimentality that comes from God that we need to recapture. In fact, I've been prepping in these messages. We've prepped for a long time. I've been prepping for three, four weeks on this message. Because I've been studying this passage that's so Christian sappy, I've purposely allowed that to kind of sink into my spirit. It's been a very odd and wonderful experience for me where I am just more gooey towards my Christian brothers and sisters lately. Uh, specifically, as an example, I've been part of, at the Torrance campus, we, we did the five-week run on Wednesday nights of the Doors curriculum at, in a life group that anybody could come to. Let me show you this picture of these. <laughs> this is just part of the group. They weren't all able to make it. Uh, I know you can't see them very well, but this is the group I spent five weeks with, and uh, uh, Kim Bush, our, our facilities manager, one of our facilities managers was leading it, and Kim has just like this soft-hearted goodness and devotion to these people, and they were willing to share their hearts and challenge each other and open up, and I fell in love (laughs) with these people, and I just felt so, this growing affection towards them that poured out, I found myself saying things like, oh, dear Lily, it is great to see you again. I've been thinking about our friendship. That's so great that you're here. Or, oh, Brother Bill, I can't wait to talk about what the next question is today. I have been moving into this tender-heartedness that I want to encourage you in, that there is a sentimentality that brings a devotion and a connection with each other that we need because challenges are coming. There isn't just, the point isn't sentimentality. The point that, that Paul is making here is that dearly loving each other binds us together through what may be massive challenges to come. If 2020 wasn't it, then we only have a new bar set for what the challenges will look like in our modern times, where we need to say, are we bound together? In fact, I just want to put it very simply like that. I want to challenge you, the first point is this, be bound together in love. In fact, that was my first draft, and then I recognize maybe that doesn't communicate like love. What do I mean? So I rewrote it. Here's the new draft, version 2.0. Be bound together in sentimental affection. That you would long, your heart would be open to embracing those in the family of Jesus in a way that would bind us across meeting times, bind us across distance. Paul is uh, resent, uh, echo, he wants us to echo that in him because he's echoing it from his king, Jesus, who said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll be with you always. That how can we share our hearts that way this week? I can tell you this often comes uh, from more connectedness to each other. If, maybe you're in the spot, and that's great. If you're new or maybe for a long time, you're in the spot where you're thinking about your church connection in terms of this service. That's fine, but listen, that's just the beginning. I don't want you to say, well, I like or I dislike church because of the preaching or the music style or whether my kids have fun. I want you to find family here. 
I want you to be bound together in sentimental affection for one another. We need the gooeyness, friends. The mushy Christian love needs to have a resurgence in our modern age. In fact, Paul doubles down on this. Let me show you where he goes next. He just trumpets how much he loves these people. Here's how he talks about it. I love these passages. He says, after all, what gives us hope and joy? What will be our proud reward, the crown, as we stand before our Lord Jesus when he does return? It is you. Yes, you are our pride and joy. Wouldn't this be great if we could say to one another that the good impact that we're having on each other is the core of our joy and our happiness as we face challenges in the world. That we'd say, oh yeah, this terrible thing is happening in my life. Man, is that hard, but I have people who love me. I can't get enough of their presence and their affection, their connectedness to our King of Kings. I can tell you, it starts by attending, but you've got to dive in to make these connections. Some of you look at this kind of emotion and feeling, sentimental affection, and you're like, I have no Christian friends like that. It's time to make friends. We want to help you make these connections. I've talked about jumping into a life group. Those are still open. I'd love for you to do that. Second thing is serving. I know we, we say those two things a lot, but jumping in. I, I can, this past, uh, two weeks ago, we had an email go around about someone who's on our serving team at the Torrance campus who was sick and he was in the hospital. And I was able to not just be like, well, I guess I'll pray. I was able to alert the troops, the family of Jesus that you're part of, the branch that's at the Torrance campus started praying for this person, and we were connected in that way. I want you to to have those Christian relationships. So here's the challenge, pretty simple question that goes along with it. How are you investing in Christian relationships where you can find support? Some of you are like, I don't have those relationships. Hey, we can help you make those relationships. How are you investing in those areas? I know it's tough to get to life group. I know it's tough to get to Sundays where you're serving once a month or twice a month. You can do it because it's needed if we're going to expect challenges and be ready for them. That's the first point today. Second thing uh, does go further into this end timesiness that I think we're going to talk about in the second half today. Uh, because Paul says, hey, even if we're connected, that's a great first step, but there's more to come. There's more challenges ahead. And he begins this section of First and Second Thessalonians where he, he prophetically speaks about what end times challenges may come to them. Here's, here's what he says just in the general. He says, you know that we are destined for such troubles. Even while we were with you, we warned you that troubles would soon come. I think since this is an end time series, it's worth at least looking at one of what those prophecies looks like. Paul in 2 Thessalonians starts talking about a character that comes along with the wars that, are, that will happen and the religious uprisings that will, the, that will cause problems and uh, the strange religious teachings that will happen. Uh, he also mentions a specific character that sometimes we refer to as this, as the Antichrist. Uh, Paul, Paul describes him as the man of lawlessness. This is a traditionally end times person that will rise to power and create political havoc against God's people. Now, this is not the first time that the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness is mentioned in the Bible. In fact, this person, this this, uh, character shows up many times in prophetic literature throughout the Bible. So let me just show you a list. Um, The first mention of this kind of person, this ruler, comes from the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament. In chapter 7, if you want to look that up, that was written about the year 600 B.C. After that, in the New Testament, Jesus himself mentions this person in chapter 24. And Jesus lived and was teaching about 30 A.D. at that time. 
Then, of course, we have Paul's mention that we're reading in 1 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians. That was written about 50 A.D. And then finally in the Bible at the end, uh, uh, John, who wrote Revelation, uh, mentions this coming ruler and the problems that he will cause there in between 60 and 80 A.D. Now, there are so many descriptions of him, but they all match up pretty well with a general list of terrible things that will describe this person who will cause chaos and havoc on God's people before Jesus returns. I know this is a hard list to read from where you're sitting. Let me read this to you. Here are some descriptions that match across the Bible. Uh, This Antichrist will place himself over all gods. In fact, he will claim that he is God. He will have huge amounts of military and political power. He will do counterfeit signs and miracles. He will defy God's temple, and he will lead people to destruction. These are the kinds of descriptions that are consistent throughout the Bible of what the Antichrist would look like when he appears on the scene. Now, this is a great example for us to walk through how does prophecy even work in the Bible. Some of us have grown up on fairy tales and uh, like uh, fantasy books where prophecies are very simple, where it's like there's a prophecy and then we read at the end of the book, oh, here's how it's fulfilled. Bible prophecy is is much more complicated than that because we live in a real world. So I actually want to walk through um, this. I want to walk through types of prophecy that are in the Bible. We're going to list five of them. Uh, Four are very common, and the fifth kind of grabs onto more of them. But let me describe how we might think of this prophecy of the man of lawlessness, of the Antichrist in this case. The first type of prophecy in the Bible is called preterist, And that means things that have already happened in the past. So for instance, when the prophet Daniel wrote his predictions in the year 600 BC, there's been plenty of time since then, and the the prophecies that he made of the man of lawlessness, if they're preterist, already occurred for us. They have happened between when Daniel wrote them down and for us. Let me give you an example of that. Here's that same list of the Antichrist uh, thing, and then this is a statue of a Greek Greek ruler called uh, Antiochus IV. He labeled himself Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He lived in the year 167 uh, AD, I'm sorry, BC, and he totally ransacked Jerusalem as a foreign power. He destroyed much of God's people at that time, and he proclaimed himself Epiphanes, which means God manifest. Specifically, he defiled the God's temple by ceasing all Jewish worship of the true God and instead trying to set it up as a temple for Zeus. Now, if you were living at that time, 167 BC, and were a God follower, this guy checks almost every single box on the list. He was very realistically the man of lawlessness that Daniel was predicting. He's unmissable historically in that sense. So, in a very real sense, this this prophecy of the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, occurred in a preterist way in 167 BC. Now, that's just one way to see certain Bible prophecies. Here's another one. Futurist. These things are yet to happen in the future. So, there may be other things that are happening when it comes to end times of what these ultimate wars or uh, catastrophes around the globe will be. That would be a futurist. We're very comfortable. This is probably the one we're most comfortable with. There's prediction, and in the future, it will be fulfilled. That, that one sticks out to us, especially in our Western culture. Here's another one, though. Historist or historist. I don't know how to pronounce um, These are things that happen throughout the history, that when Daniel and Paul and Jesus are describing this, they're describing a pattern of evil rulers throughout our history, Nero and Hitler and people like that. This is a recurring 
pattern. Finally, well, not finally, but here's number four of five. Idealist says some of these prophecies might just be describing the spiritual reality in general, that what Paul or Jesus or Daniel is describing isn't necessarily one figure, but just a spiritual truth about our broken world and the way that political leadership leads to this kind of corruption. Paul himself references this kind of reading in 2 Thessalonians. He's talking about a man of lawlessness, but then he says this, this lawlessness is already at work secretly. He's saying even before the guy comes, there's still a mess of lawlessness as a as a illness in our society, in our human sinful nature. Now, I want to show you one last uh, version of how we could see some prophecies. I think it's probably the most common in biblical prophecy, and it doesn't have as good of a name, but it's called eclectic, which basically means we're grabbing bits from lots of different ones. This has happened in some ways, and it will ultimately happen. For instance, this is the kind of prophetic viewpoint that would say, yes, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, did fulfill this prophecy, and yet... When Jesus and John and Paul show up, they are saying, yes, he did, but there will be an ultimate example of this person as well. This, to me, seems the most likely in the case of the man of lawlessness. We have other examples. We're actually, this is going to come back in our Christmas series about some of the Christmas predictions of where and how Jesus would be born. This eclectic, it has been happening, it has happened, and it will happen to the ultimate extreme again. Thank you for sitting through all of that. Some of you were like, that was the greatest eight minutes that we've ever had at church. And others of you were like, what the heck are we talking about? This is nonsense. Hey, the reason why this is important is two reasons. First, some of you are Bible nerds, and you need to know that that's okay, and we're with you, and that prophetic things is a fascinating subject that we can dig uh, deep into. That's a wonderful thing. The second thing, though, is that this idea of a man of lawlessness has is something that our culture loves. We have a problematic way of seeing this prediction and then being very quick to jump at who this person might be. Oh, there he is. It's that guy that I don't like, (laughs) is the Antichrist. We've done this throughout human history where we have problematically been very eager to label people as the Antichrist. I can tell you some of your favorite people have been labeled the Antichrist by other people who disagree with you. Um, The way that we operate is that we want to find this person. The problem with that is that labeling almost always comes from a bad heart where it leads to division and more fear. I'm not saying we shouldn't be on the lookout for this character, but I want you to know that God's predictions of this character are not meant to bring fear and division In fact, here's how Paul says that this person will operate. Here's what he says about this man of lawlessness eventually. The man of lawlessness will be revealed, but the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. Paul is basically like, yeah, people think this is going to be some big battle. This guy's going to wreak havoc, and then Jesus is going to show up and be like, done. Because Jesus is the ultimate victor. Jesus wins. In fact, what the, the message, the prophecies about the Antichrist are intended to teach us is this very simple mes- message, God always wins. Eventually, whatever it is that God needs to overcome, God will bring completeness to his justice and his mercy at the same exact time when he wraps up history. I don't know how he will do this, but even in the message and the prophecies behind the Antichrist, the Antichrist is nothing 
compared to the king of kings who will wash him away with the very breath of his mouth? What is it in your life that you need to see through that same lens that has been a challenge to you that you need to know? Actually, here's the, the second main point for today is this. We need, you need to see your current struggle as part of a larger battle that Jesus has already won. Jesus destroyed death. We still have to go through it until he returns, but even then, if you are his follower, you will live again into eternity with him. Jesus overcomes the the greatest fears in our life. We need to refocus the way that we perceive the expect challenges message to say, am I seeing what I'm currently going through as something that Jesus is eventually, ultimately going to have victory over? In fact, just with this slide up, I want to I challenge you with something. I want to ask you to think about what is it in your life that has been that enemy, that big problem, that stress point. Maybe it's something happening outside. Maybe it's a sin struggle you're having. Well, can you bring that to the front of your mind? I know that's uncomfortable to think of. What is the biggest struggle you are currently happening? You need to know that Jesus is going to have ultimate victory in that area. He is going to make right what is now wrong in your life. If you would devote yourself to him, whether that's here in this life or into eternity, he will solve that problem. God always wins. Secondly, what is it that in the future is the most scary thing for you? What, when you look ahead, are you like, I don't know how I'm going to pay for college for my kids. I don't know how I'm going to find the right career. I don't know how I'm going to meet all these pressures of school that are on me right now. What is it in your life that, that keeps you up at night about the future? We need to relook at those things. You need to know that ultimately God wins. God wants to bring you into his place. We sang that even this morning. I'm going to see a victory, we sang. The battle belongs to who? Not to you and having to figure out the battle belongs to the Lord. God wants you to live in peace, knowing that even though we can expect challenges, God is, Jesus has overcome the world of challenges. So in review, here's the things we learned today. We need to be bound together in sentimental affection, and we need to see our current struggles as part of a larger battle that Jesus has already won. Um, Tucked into this passage, and here's how we're going to close today. Tucked into this passage is this beautiful prayer that, uh, that Paul writes to his dear friends. And we're going to close with that prayer today. Uh, usually, we use our own words to pray, and God hears that. Today, I want to pray the same prayer that Paul prayed for his friends, for his church. I want to pray that over you uh, as a blessing to us uh, and a thank, out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word. So actually, both here at Manhattan Beach and Torrance, will you stand? This is going to serve as our closing prayer today. Hey, after service, by the way, if you have any need for prayer or a little bit more discussion, uh, here at Manhattan Beach, we'll, uh, we'll have prayer team members by the cross here at Torrance. It's on the other side for now. Uh, you can find those great volunteers. They'd love to have more connection with you. All right, let me read these words over us as we leave. Here's what it says. May God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ bring us to you very soon. May the Lord make your love for one another and for all people grow and overflow just as our love for you overflows. May he, as a result, make your hearts strong, blameless, and holy as you stand before God, our Father, when our Lord Jesus comes again with all his holy people. All right, well, thank you so much for coming to church, and we'll see you back next week.